I remember the summer that I first learned how to dive. I was on the kids' swim team at the neighborhood sports club, and the coach lined us up by the edge of the pool in the section where it was about six feet deep. At first, she just had us squat down and put our arms over our heads and just fall in, nothing to it. And we did that for a while. But little by little, I gained confidence and I rose up. And soon I was able to dive from a standing position and then from a running start. I learned how to dive farther and so to get ahead in a race. But what really interested me was diving deeper because what I really wanted to do was to touch the bottom of the pool, not where it was six feet deep, but in the deep end where it was more than 10 feet deep. I can remember whole afternoons just doing that, diving off the diving board and into the water, swimming down, pushing hard with my arms and my legs, pushing air out of my lungs so I could go even deeper. I would stretch out my hand and touch the drain on the bottom of the pool, all before bouncing back up to the surface and climbing the ladder and doing it all again. When the sun went down and the lifeguard blew the last whistle, I felt tired. There was some strain involved, but that was part of it. You had to push, you had to struggle, you had to strive. But I would also always feel powerful. It's so thrilling to learn something new. When I imagine the earliest followers of Jesus, I imagine people who were high on new learning. Because of this gospel, this new story they had never heard before, their vision had shifted from black and white to full color. There was no going back. They had decided to live differently. There was a word they would use to describe this, repentance or metanoia in Greek. Repentance meant to change your mind, to change your heart, and to change your complete course in life. It makes me think about modern expressions like do the work, be your best self, or be the change you want to see in the world. Repentance, to change and to be better. When the Apostle Paul showed up in Ephesus, he encountered disciples like this people who had repented, who were on a new path because they had come to believe in a power greater than themselves. But as Paul spoke with these disciples, he could sense that something was off. Something they said or did, and we don't know exactly what, it made Paul question their faith. And so finally, he had to ask them this awkward question. Did you all receive the Holy Spirit when you were baptized? Their response was a blank stare. And so like any good teacher, Paul asked a follow-up question. Into what then were you baptized? Their answer, into John's baptism. Now in all likelihood, they had been baptized by a man named Apollos According to Acts, Apollos was a faithful and a gifted preacher who taught the gospel accurately, but he only knew the baptism of John. That is the baptism that had been practiced by John the Baptist. And this apparently was a problem. Why? 
What's wrong with John's baptism? It was good enough for Jesus. He was baptized by John. And John's baptism had a compelling theological basis. He called it a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. That's solid stuff. According to Luke's gospel, John also taught the people he baptized to care for the poor, to be equitable and just, and to tell the truth. All good things. And most of all, John taught the people he baptized to be looking out for the Messiah who is coming into the world. That's Jesus. So what's really wrong here? What's missing? Why did Paul feel that he had to intervene? You know, as much as I loved to dive as a kid, I did not like to float. It was my least favorite part of swim practice, though of course, floating is essential. I think it was hard for me intentionally to relax, to tilt my head back and spread my arms out and to just let the water hold me. And when inevitably I would start to sink, it was counterintuitive for me to breathe more deeply or to kick my legs, but only gently in order to stay afloat. I liked diving because it was all about action. Floating was so passive. Diving depended on me, on my energy and my commitment and my skill. Floating required surrender. I have a hunch that Paul's choice to baptize these disciples was more than liturgical or theological correctness. I think he saw that these disciples were like divers who had never really learned to float. Their faith was sincere and energetic, and in many ways it was knowledgeable and true. But they had not yet learned to surrender. They were still relying on their own power when they needed to rely on God's power. They were good at following Jesus. They were good at believing in Jesus, but they had not yet been baptized into Jesus, into his life, into his death, into his resurrection. They were not yet in Christ. And that was something that Paul had to address. Baptism, then as now, is about being one with Christ. And that takes surrender. And surrender, well, it often feels like loss. Maybe that's a funny thing to say about baptism, to call it a loss. Loss is sad. And baptism is happy. Baptism is cute babies in pretty white dresses. Baptism is proud parents and portraits by the font and celebratory brunch. But even when we baptize babies, as we Presbyterians do, there is an element of surrender. It's the parents. The parents have to stand by and acknowledge before the whole congregation that this child of theirs is also, and even more so, a child of God, a child of the church. That is an act of surrender. And when children are old enough to declare their faith through the confirmation process, we ask them to make promises that are anything but self-serving or self-interested, and they do it. Just this past spring, our ninth grade confirmands in front of the whole church 
They called Jesus their Lord. They said it out loud, sincerely hoping in that moment that they would be able to put Jesus at the center of their lives. Conferman's promise to be faithful disciples when there are many, much shinier things to be in this world. And they say that they will be obedient to Jesus and devoted to his church, not on their own power. I will, they say, but with God's help. Both baptism and confirmation, which comes as a response to baptism, they're both about surrender. And no matter where we are in life, no matter when we were baptized, when we remember it, we remember that we are not our own. But that's not the whole story of baptism. Remember Paul's first question to the disciples. He wanted to know if they had received the Holy Spirit when they were baptized. They had not. But they did receive the Spirit once Paul baptized them in the name of the Lord Jesus and had laid, their hand, laid his hands on them. These two pieces, baptism in Jesus' name and receiving the Holy Spirit, they always go together. There's no taking them apart. And that is very good news. When we surrender ourselves to Christ, our loss is actually a gain. We receive power through our submission to God's power. Power is a part of our baptism. I'm hard pressed to find a better illustration of this point than Pixar's Finding Nemo. As you probably know, the movie tells the story of a clownfish named Marlin. And Marlin is searching desperately for his son Nemo, who was snapped up by fishermen from his home in the Great Barrier Reef and put into a fish tank in a dentist's office in Sydney. As Marlin sets out from the reef to rescue Nemo, he is joined by a royal blue tang fish named Dory. Dory is a cockeyed optimist whose just keep swimming positivity, frankly, gets on Marlin's nerves. Marlin is a pessimist, he's a worrier, and maybe he has every right to be, his son is missing. Still, despite their differences, Dory and Marlin form a friendship and they have adventures together on their way to find Nemo. But just as they're getting close to their goal, Marlin and Dory get sucked in to the mouth of a blue whale. There's enough water in there for them to swim around, but there's no escape. Marlin is clearly freaking out. And Dory, convinced that she can speak whale, is trying to negotiate their release. At first, it doesn't seem to be going well. Maybe Marlin is right to be afraid. The water inside the whale's mouth starts to go down and to pour back toward his throat. It looks like the fish are about to be eaten. Soon they are barely hanging on by their fins to the whale's tongue like climbers on a steep rock wall. They are about to go down the hatch and Marlin cries out in fear. But right in that terrifying moment, Dory says, okay, and she lets go and she falls. Marlin catches her by the fin, but Dory protests. The whale has told her that it's time to let go. 
How do you know something bad isn't going to happen, says Marlin. I don't, says Dory. And with that, Marlin lets go too, and they both fall down, down, down into the darkness. Until in a great burst of bubbles, the whale spews them out of his blowhole and into the open sea, which is right where they need to be. I don't know who first said to let go and let God. It's kind of a cliche. But scripture and our faith attest to this truth, that a life surrendered to God becomes a life empowered by God. In the early church, the Holy Spirit's power manifested in tongues and in prophetic truths, as we heard in today's story. The scripture showed up in other ways too, though, and still does today. Wherever there is love, joy, or peace, the Spirit is working. Where there is patience, kindness, or generosity, where there is faithfulness, gentleness, or self-control, everything good is endowed by the Spirit of God, including faith itself. None of this, none of it is achieved by our efforts. It's all a gift. Our power is so small in comparison to God's power. It pales in comparison. But the thing about God is that God is always bent on giving power away. And friends, people of God, that power is coming to us and it is still, even now, moving through us and out into the world. But if we cannot let go of whatever else it is that we are holding on to for dear life, if in fear we cling to control or to self-image or to stuff, if we never say okay and let go, we will miss the holy experience that is our baptismal inheritance. Perhaps to fall by the world's standards, that's true but then to rise, to be carried and to be held by the love that never lets us go. I have not gone to the pool in my community this summer. I have felt too nervous. The pool is only a few yards across and I just can't be sure of a safe social distance. There are many ways and many reasons to be afraid. There are always are. But you know, without putting even a toe in the water, my goal before the end of this summer is to learn how to float and to do so with joy. I want to let go, to let God, to surrender, and so to feel the power, the power within and around me that is holding everything together, and slowly, ever so slowly, making everything new. In the name of God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen.